Our Father, we're grateful that you have blessed us in so many ways. You give us life, strength, health. You give us encouragement and direction. Father, you supply our every need according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus. <coughs> Father, as we look around at this country, let alone the world, we realize how blessed we are because we have so much of this world's goods and beyond that we have eternal life. And as we consider the sweep of human history, we know we have to be in the uh, less than 1% of the most privileged who have ever lived on this planet from the day of creation. And Father, I pray that we will be thankful people, that we will learn to always give thanks to you for what you have done and what you are in the process of doing. Even though we see so much tragedy around this country and so much living in uh, horrible conditions, Father, we know that you care for every one of those individuals uh, deeply, and you love each one equally. And Father, we pray that there might be a great revival that might sweep across this land and uh, bring many into the kingdom in these latter days. And we pray that you will work even from the top of our government down and uh, draw men and women uh, of leadership responsibility into the kingdom and pray that they might live according to the faith that they profess. Father, we are, I am grateful for your blessing over these past three Sundays in the ministry of Dr. Brown, and we just pray now that you will guide us as we pick up again in Genesis and look at the story of uh, Isaac and, and Rachel and the work that you did in, on their behalf. We're just grateful to you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I don't know, it probably was a little bit of a break for you, wasn't it, to not be looking at Genesis all the time, but uh, if you can find your way back to the 24th chapter of Genesis, somehow or other, I thought I was totally prepared for today, but I found that I don't have a page 46 typed up, so we'll finish 45, and you'll get 46 next week so that you can kind of go back a little <laughs> and look at it uh, as to what we touched on today. I'd like for us to read beginning verse 28. Verse 28 of Genesis 24. Then the girl ran and told her mother's household about these things. Now Rebekah had, been, ha had a brother whose name was Laban. And Laban, Laban ran outside to to the man at the spring. And it came about that when, he, that when he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrists, and when he heard the words of Rebekah his sister saying, this is what the man said to me, he went to the man and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. And he said, come in, blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside since I have prepared the house and a place for the camels? So the man entered the house. Then Laban unloaded the camels and gave straw and feed to the camels and water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. But when food was set before him to eat, he said, I will not eat until I have told my business. And he said, Speak on. And so he said, I am Abraham's servant, and the Lord has greatly blessed my master so that he has become rich. And he has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and servants and maids and camels and donkeys. Now Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master in her old age. 
and he has given him all that he has. And my master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I live. But you shall go to my father's house and to my relatives and take a wife for my son. And I said to my master, Suppose the woman does not follow me. And he said to me, The Lord before whom I, I have walked will send his angel with you to make your journey successful. And you will take a wife for my son from my relatives and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my relatives. And if they do not give her to you, you'll be free from my oath. Let's stop there for a minute, if you can remember. And he will, of course, recount this further as we look at the, the next passage. Abraham is getting on in years. Oh, he's got many years yet, yet to live, as we discover later on in the next chapter. And many more children would be born to Abraham uh, by a second wife. But um, I guess a third wife, if you consider Hagar. But he is very concerned about his son Isaac. And his, his son Isaac's going to inherit all that he has, but his son has no wife. And so this is the search that we've been talking about, and we haven't looked at, of course, now for, for almost four weeks. The servant is a faithful man. We've talked about the fact that many commentators consider him to be Eliezer, the Eliezer of Damascus that Abraham spoke to God as being the inheritor of all that he had because he had no son. Uh, we don't have confirmation of that in the later verses, but most commentators feel that he is uh, fitting of that description when he is first mentioned. Well, whatever his name was, we're looking at an extremely faithful man here a man whom any one of us would be happy to have if, as our friend, our employee, our, or whatever, to uh, work on our behalf because he is a powerful example to us. What is amazing in this account is that Rebecca herself certainly was amazed at what had transpired in such a brief moment of time. She had walked out to, pick, to, to get water from the spring just as she had been doing for years. And, and now she has an encounter unlike any other encounter. It certainly didn't seem unusual at first. The man just simply asked for a drink and she gave him a drink, but she felt impelled in her heart to also offer to water the camels, which of course was no easy task because they're thirsty little critters, or big critters. And this meant a lot of trips to the spring to put water in the trough to water these camels. There was something unusual about this encounter, and she knew it inside, intuitively, intuitively. Certainly the Spirit of God was ministering to her. I, I believe that we can be pretty sure that she was not accustomed to just offering water to uh, strangers and to uh, water camels of strangers either. Uh, this, I think, was a very unusual thing for her to do. But there was something about this, this uh, stranger that intrigued her. There was something about him that drew her to him, that made her want to do for him what he needed to have done. I think it was an inner compulsion. I think it was the work of God's Spirit in her heart. The stranger was certainly amazed at what she did. He stood dumbfounded as she quickly fulfilled all that he had prayed. Oh God, I pray that the woman, 
that is your choice who comes out will be the one who when I ask her for a drink will also offer to water the camels and beyond that she's awful also I'm still on uh, East Coast time so <laughs> uh, my tongue keeps wrapping around something else it seems like in here but uh, as you know whenever you travel across the country you uh, takes you a little while to get back in in gear here so for us it's about one in the afternoon <laughs> There was this inner peace that she had that made her sense that she was doing the right thing. And of course, the liberal gift that he had given to her, he had given her the rings, the ring for her nose, the bracelets for her wrist. Uh, as I mentioned to you last time, it probably worked out to $1,500, $2,000 worth of gold that he hung on her. And then the most intriguing thing was the fact that he mentioned the name Abraham in his prayer. And that must have just, you know, uh, caused her ears to uh, be attentive very, very quickly. This was the name of her long-lost granduncle, someone she had never seen in her life. She had heard about him. She knew he was off in a distant land down to the south, but she had never seen him and had no direct contact with him. And to her, he was almost semi-legendary because certainly she had heard of his wealth and of his power and of his faithfulness to his God. Now certainly it wouldn't have been pr uh, proper for her to say, oh, well, come home with me and we, we have a place for you to stay. She had offered the lodging, but she had to go home to check and make sure that it was okay and to have her brother come and actually lead the man home because it wouldn't be proper for her as a young maiden to lead these men to her house. And so she ran through the streets. We don't know how far. It doesn't indicate. It seems like it wasn't very far from what we read uh, in the passage this morning. But he went, uh, she went home to inform her brother of what had happened. Now, it's very strange when you think about that, isn't it? She informs her brother. The scripture tells us that she returned to her mother's household. Her mother's household. We might think, therefore, that she was um, fatherless. But she is not fatherless. The passage makes it clear uh, later on, that uh, her father is alive, Beth Bethuel. But what this seems to indicate is that Bethuel must have been invalid, uh, infirm, or some way incapacitated and not able to head the household and therefore was living with his in-laws. And it seems that he does not have command of the situation because the son Laban does all the speaking and does all the deciding. Probably in concert, in fact, there's a, a verse in here that indicates it's done in concert with his father, but it seems that the brother is uh, performing the function of the man of the household. So the father is alive, Bethuel, but apparently uh, there's something wrong with him so that he's not able to be in charge of of his own household. Whatever the case, she told Laban, her brother, of all that the man had said, of his prayer, and of the gifts that she had received from him, and showed him the jewelry that uh, Abraham's servant had given to her. And so we're told that he immediately ran back to the spring, and he found Abraham's servant standing there with the other men in the camels, obviously waiting to see what the response would be. Laban greets him very enthusiastically, it seems, pardon me, and uh, urges the servant to come home with him, 
uh, bring your camels, bring your men, all of you come to our house. We have a place prepared for you. Now, how could that be so? It would indicate here that she ran home, told her brother, he runs back to the spring. There's no seeming time lapse in there. And yet he tells him that we have prepared a place for you. Well, I think that this indicates that in that culture in those days, it was standard to keep a place prepared. To have a uh, kind of a stable area and to have some room set aside because of the constant travel that was going on in those days and the Near Eastern hospitality, sort of like many of us, may have a guest bedroom and we keep it prepared for that uh, guest who may drop in, uh, you know, without notice or maybe with notice. <laughs> and uh, so this seems to be the case here. Now, what this tells us is that. First of all, Laban and Bethuel, the household, is probably not dinky. It's probably not just a little mud hut in the corner someplace because they have place for at least 10 camels, possibly twice that many. And we don't know how many men came with Abraham's servant, but as I mentioned uh, several weeks ago, it would probably be maybe up to a dozen men. So the place had to be fairly large for them to accommodate all of these people and all of these camels. It's interesting that in this passage, Laban referred to Abraham's servant as blessed of the Lord. Blessed of the Lord. Literally, the, the literal Hebrew here is you who kneel before Yahweh. Come you who kneel before Yahweh. He greets him in that manner. Now this does not necessarily mean that Laban knew Yahweh or was a worshiper of the God of the Bible. It could simply mean that he is doing nothing more than acknowledging that this was the God referred to in the prayer as Rebekah related it to Laban. And certainly he knew of Yahweh and uh, therefore was acknowledging that, but it doesn't indicate that Laban himself was a follower of Yahweh. And we'll, we'll get back to that uh, point a little bit later. So the caravan is moved. Small caravan, but nevertheless a caravan, is moved through the streets to the house of Rebekah, Laban, Bethuel, and uh, the family. And then we're told Laban supervises the unloading of the camels, and he sees to it that water is brought for the feet of Abraham's servant and the other men who are with them. Now, that is a very, very common custom in that world, in that day. It's unusual to us. Uh, probably most of us don't wash other people's feet when they come to our house. Most people don't want to take their shoes off if they can avoid it. But uh, obviously, the reason in those days was the people traveled in open sandals and their feet became extremely dirty. And those who have studied this in, in some detail indicate that it's very, very possible that this foot washing practice goes way back in history. Some even say to the dawn of civilization and that this was an age-old practice and not just Near Eastern. Well, whatever the case was, uh, it was done for not only the reason of uh, hospitality, but it was done for the comfort of the traveler. And you leave your old dirty sandals outside, wash feet, come inside on the rugs and whatever is thrown on the floor. And you're comfortable, it's refreshing, it's uh, a practice that 
we know Jesus made a big point of, don't we? 1900 years later, Jesus himself, as you remember from the passage in the New Testament, washed the feet of his disciples. Now, he didn't wash the feet of his disciples simply to carry out a custom. <laughs> Talk about feet. They'll be through pretty soon and we can wash them. <laughs> Jesus did it because he knew one of the greatest problems that would face his people and his church down through time would be spiritual arrogance. People who would become proud of their spirituality and begin to lord it over one another. And, and you and I have seen how it's happened in the church, have we not? A tremendous hierarchy has developed. So that you have a single man up the top who's a vicar of Christ. And you have various layers underneath. And, and, and great uh, honor and respect is given to these people as if there's something uh, about them that's a cut above everybody else where God says he is no respecter of persons. God thinks no more highly of, of Billy Graham or Pope Paul or anybody else uh, than he does of you or me or the person in the ghetto. God considers us all the same. He loves us all equally, and we're all of equal importance. And it's just been the nature of, of the human race to exalt people who are in spiritual uh, positions of authority. And you see this in all religions. It doesn't matter if it's Christianity or something else. We, we always see this happening. And uh, Jesus knew it would happen, and therefore he said, as I have done unto you, now do to one another. Because that was the servant's task. Now, Laban himself didn't wash the feet. Uh, he provided the water, and certainly it doesn't say so specifically, but certainly servants washed the feet because that was their job. It was a lowly task to wash the feet of travelers. And so Jesus himself becomes exemplary of this. He, the Lord of the universe, would take the lowliest task. And then he would say, you do the same for one another. If you're doing the lowliest task, it's pretty hard to get up on your pedestal and look down at everybody else and say, you poor people down there, when you get as spiritual as I am, then, then uh, I'll be able to treat you as equals. But in the meantime, you're all inferior. I mean, here is Jesus setting this wonderful example. And he said it in so many words in John 13 when he said, If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. Now, we don't do that literally, physically. Most of us don't, anyway. But we should have that attitude uh, towards one another, that we really, well, what, is, what does Paul say? He says that we are each to consider the other better than ourselves and to exalt one another. And that's really hard to do because we live in a society where it says, look out for number one. You know? uh, you're the important one. Do whatever, you, you know, what is EST and some of these other things all about? It's about putting other people in their place and showing them that you're somebody, which is just the opposite of what uh, Jesus teaches in the Word of God. Not, not that we're to be doormats, you know, uh, the, the worm theology, as some call it, uh, but we're to understand the importance of each other relative to ourselves. And that's where our focus has got to be, and that's what Jesus was uh, saying, I believe. In the 33rd verse here of Genesis uh, 24, 
He said, but, er, Moses says, but when, the, when food was set before him to eat, he said, I will not eat until I have told my business. And so Laban said to him, well, speak your business then so that we can be about dinner. He was concerned about a task. This man had a job to do, and he was going to do this job no matter what else came along. He was tired, he was hungry, he was in an inviting household, and yet he would not accept that hospitality until he made sure that the purpose for which he had come would be fulfilled. And so he refused to eat until he had explained his purpose, and they understood, and they responded to his request. Now, he was pretty excited because he had prayed that prayer, and God had answered that prayer just bing, 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 right down the line, right to the letter, and even beyond. And so he was pretty sure that this was the right person, this was the right household, but he wanted to push through to completion. And so he couldn't wait until after dinner. He wanted to know now whether or not Rebecca would be willing to go and become the wife of Isaac. Is this the girl? Think about it for a moment. This is all taking place in one afternoon, one evening, whenever it is. It's just a short period of time. How many of you would like somebody to come up and say, hey, I've got a guy for you or I've got a gal for you? Uh, to be married, and I want to know your answer right now. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I mean, <clears throat> sure, why not? <laughs> we, we have some little saying in our society about a pig and a poke, you know, and uh, we're not really too sure about some of these things. But from verse 34 down through verse 41, he uh, again explains what we've already learned from earlier verses uh, to Rebecca's family, who he was, who Abraham was, who Isaac was, what was the purpose of his journey. He didn't just happen into the square that day. He was there on a mission. And the ultimate purpose of his long journey to Paden Aram was to get a wife for his master's son. That was his job. That was what he was about to do. Now, in verse 35 tells us something, I think, very important. He made sure that they knew that Abraham was not some... Uh, no account relative trying to sponge off them or you know somehow derive something from them with no return and he also made it quite clear that the prospective bridegroom would be the inheritor of all of this great estate in effect he was saying Rebecca would be taking a big step upward socially and economically but that was of course not to be the primary bait at all here Verse 42, so I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if thou wilt make my journey on which I go successful, behold, I am standing by the spring. May it be that the maiden who comes out to draw and to whom I say, please let me drink a little water from your jar, that she will say to me, you drink and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder and went down to the spring and drew. And I said to her, Please let me drink. And she quickly lowered her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink. 
and I will water your camels also. So I drank, and she watered the camels also. Then I asked her and said, Whose daughter are you? And she said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. And I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her wrist. And I bowed low and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had guided me in the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. So now, if you are going to deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. If not, let me know that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. He describes, recounts the events of the, the previous uh, few hours to Rebecca's family, and he emphasizes his prayer to God and that it was God's direct answer. This was no coincidence. Uh, this was no setup. God had answered directly, the God to whom I prayed, the God of my master Abraham. In verse 48, he puts the ball squarely in their court with the name of God behind it. And blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had guided me in the right way to take a daughter, the daughter of my master's kinsman, for his son. Now, God had guided him clearly, and he made that known well to them up to that moment. So, that being true, they couldn't just dismiss this as a whim. They had to deal with something that God had brought about. What are you going to do about it? You know? And he took full advantage of the fact that God was in this. In verse 49, he came right to the point. That's what I like about this man. He was to the point. He was not around the bush. Before <coughs> I eat or accept any more of your hospitality, tell me whether or not you will give serious consideration to Abraham's request. If not, I will look elsewhere. In effect, that's what he was saying. Think about it for a minute. It is no wonder why this man was in charge of Abraham's household. This was a man of tremendous, not only ability, but of commitment a man who understood his job and did it without somebody supervising or badgering or, or being on top of him all the time. He had an inner commitment to the task. He was faithful. He was gracious. He was wise. And you'll notice he was perseverant. He wasn't even going to eat until he found out whether this was the answer to his prayer in its ultimate resolution. Not even eat. How many of us say, oh, well, shoo, I'm hungry. Let's, let's eat and then we can worry about this later. <laughs> not this man. He's right to the point. He was not willing to waste any of the time that his master had given him or the trust that his master had given to him on foolishness of any sort, not even the necessities of life, like eating in this particular case. Of course, he probably wouldn't have starved to death in the next... Uh, hour or more, but anyway, he, uh, if they weren't going to take him seriously, he was going to move on. To me, this speaks uh, volumes. This, this servant's attitude and his actions are really a powerful challenge to us all. If we look at this and contemplate, think about it for a little bit, and look at the example that this man made, uh, gave, gave to us all. Uh, he was about his master's business, as we are to be about our master's business. 
And he was not a man of nonsense or foolishness, just as we are not to be men and women of nonsense and foolishness. But we live in a nonsensical and foolish society, don't we? And, and you can sit down, if you care to, and watch nonsense by the hour on television. You know, stupidity. Stuff that could have been written by a two-year-old, and probably was. Uh, that, that people sit in front of and watch, you know, uh, for hours on end. And, and that is just a teeny little sliver of the nonsense that our society is, well, we capitalize on it here. We, we emphasize it. He was not even going to accept food or comfort until he had done what he had been sent to do. This tells us, I think, something about what God expects of his servants, who we are to be, even as this man was. And that is that we ought not to live for our comfort primarily either. But that's not what our society tells us. Our society tells us that we should be looking out for our comfort, our joy, our, quote, fun, our all of these things all the time because that's premier, that's preeminent. But that's not what Scripture tells us at all. Scripture teaches us something very, very different. Let me read a, a verse from Matthew that you know very well, Matthew 10, 39. Jesus is speaking and he says very succinctly, he who has found his life shall lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. Now, to me, what is being said there is that the person who goes after his life for his own selfish purposes will ultimately lose his life. It's like the rich man who, when his crops were so abundant, rather than sharing, he tears down his barns and builds bigger ones so that he'll be able to store all of his... I mean, the man is totally self, selfish and self-indulgent. And God says, you fool, tonight your soul will be required from you. Then what are you going to do with it all? You know, as Solomon says, what is really life all about if you earn all of this and build up this great estate and, and leave it to uh, somebody who will just waste it away? And what's it all about? What is the purpose of it all? But he who has lost his life for my sake shall find. That doesn't necessarily mean to die for Christ. Even ultimately, uh, the scripture teaches us that that is is, uh, you know, the, the martyrdom is a wonderful thing. But giving of our lives to him to, to live for his sake is, I think, the basic thrust here. You know, as we're told in Romans uh, 12, that we're to uh, give our lives as a living sacrifice. And, and that's not always pleasing ourselves first. It's not, you know, titillating our senses, which is, seems to be the, the main purpose of so much of the advertisement in our society today. What this is telling us, I think, is that if we pursue diligently and with all our effort the things which this world considers to be important, we're going to lose what is really important. Because life is, it's gone. Have you ever noticed how quickly it's going by? Uh, you know, as you become, ch you, you become, first you, 
you know, you, you grow up, you go to college, oh, couldn't wait to get to college, but once you pass college, whoo, you know, you get married, you have children, and then your children grow up, get married and have children, and your grandparents, you know, and then you look down the line to being great-grand, oh, you know, it's going very quickly. And if our focus in all of this is on pleasing ourselves, there's a big blank wall at the end, and we're going to hit it awfully hard. But God is telling us, even through the attitude of this servant, that if we put his commandments first and we serve him, if we become foot washers, in effect, in that we have uh, that mind in us that was in Christ Jesus, we're told in Paul's letters, that then we will gain what is of true value and will be propelled not only in this life through joy and contentment and peace, but into that eternal joy and contentment and peace. Most of us know so well the Matthew 6.33 verse, and we even sing the little chorus, that if we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, then all these things will be added unto you. And, and you think, well, what does all these things mean? And, well, you look at the context, and the context is actually talking about physical things, uh, at least in part. It's talking about food and clothing and, and, by implication, a place to dwell. All of these things God will supply to us if we pursue, first of all, the matters of his kingdom. And that is so diametrically opposed to what our society has become to be all about. You know, our, our advertising aspect of our society is constantly emphasizing the other side of it all. Let's focus on what pleases us. You know, the best smelling perfume, the finest clothes, the finest restaurants, uh, you know, all this stuff, which is all going to go up in a fervent heat, Peter tells us, and really isn't worth the time of day for the most part. Now, does God consider the physical things of our lives important? Does God uh, just expect us all to run around in, in, in rags uh, eating breadcrumbs? Well, I really don't think so. He makes a pretty strong statement through Paul's uh, letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.8, where, you know, Paul really puts it in perspective and brings it down to, to what's practical in life. You know, we all hear the famous statement which has been quoted many times out of context and with no credit to, to Paul, that uh, he who will not work will not eat. We even heard this quoted by some uh, tour guides at various places uh, without any reference to the Bible. But uh, in verse 8 here he says, If anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever or as an infidel as the King James puts it. What, what is this talking about? Well, I think it's a, it's a broad statement, but certainly it does include providing for the basic needs of one's family. Food and clothing and shelter is certainly included here. Beyond that, I think training in spiritual things uh, is, is implied too. But Paul is telling us that if you don't even provide for the needs of your own family, you're worse than an infidel no matter who you claim to be in God. So God cares. 
And he talks about clothing the flowers of the field and feeding the birds of the air. How much, of how much greater value are we? So God cares about those things. So God will see to it that those needs are met if we seek first his kingdom. And so this servant becomes a great example of, that, of this to us because he is in effect seeking first the kingdom of God in that he's doing for his master what God has put in his master's heart to do. And he may have lived 4,000 years ago, and he may have lived without any Bible, but he was living Christianly, according to Christian principles. Let's look at verse 50 of Genesis 24. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The matter comes from the Lord, so we cannot speak to you good or bad. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. And it came about when Abraham's servant heard their words that he bowed himself to the ground before the Lord, and the servant brought out articles of silver and articles of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. And then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. But her brother and her mother said, Well, let the girl stay with us a few days. Say ten. Afterward she may go. He said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. And they said, We will call the girl and consult her wishes. Then they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? And of course the implication is immediately, right away. And she said, I will go. Thus they sent away their sister Rebekah and her nurse with Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, May you, our sister, become thousands of tens of, of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gate of those who hate them. Well, we have uh, at least an Im implication here in this passage that Bethuel is alive. What's interesting is that his name means, in effect, man of God. Man of God, El. But what does that mean about his relationship to the God of the Bible? Well, we can't tell. You remember when we read about Abraham leaving and coming to out of Ur of Chaldees and, and over to uh, Canaan, the, the scripture tells us that Terah who was his father and, and his family were worshipers of other gods. And we will see when we get to 31st chapter of Genesis that Laban had household gods, teraphim, what, whatever that all implied. It would seem, therefore, that the least we could say about Bethuel and Laban and the household was that they were superstitious, that they were sort of broad in their worship, that they weren't specific to Yahweh, that they were willing to include Yahweh, but they didn't view him as the only God. That would seem to be what is implied here from, from these various passages. Remember, Laban comes chasing after Jacob because he th says, you've stolen my teraphim. Where are my household gods? They're probably little good luck charms, you know, like the Lares and the Penates in the ancient Roman household and so forth. What, what, whatever they were, it's not real clear. But they were not objects that had to do with the worship of Yahweh. 
That seems to be true. Now Laban speaks apparently in concert with his father uh, on behalf of Rebekah. And uh, this seems to indicate that Bethuel is not competent here. Bethuel's there, but there's something wrong with Bethuel. He's not able to be his own spokesman. And so Laban speaks on behalf of his father, and, and all of these events take place. And Bethuel just seems to be back in the dark shadows of the background somehow. Whether he was mentally incompetent, uh, you know, what, what is wrong with him, we cannot tell. What is interesting here was that they give a very wise answer here. We read that in the first couple of verses, 50 and 51, where he, in effect he's saying, if this is of God, we can't say yes or no, can we? If this is of God, what can we say? The matter is taken out of our hands. So whether grudgingly or not, they said our, our sister, our daughter, may go with you. Now, in their hearts, were they resisting that? Uh, was this an enthusiastic thing? It's not really clear here. Uh, it, it seems probably it was a little bit of resistance there. They, they, they feel like their arms are being twisted here, if by the Almighty. But they give their approval for Rebecca to go to become Isaac's wife. And this servant, I mean, this guy is consistent. You'll notice he he gives us another wonderful example. He falls on his knees in front of everybody and praises the God of his master Abraham for what he has accomplished so wonderfully, so clearly, so specifically, and so powerfully. This man is such a powerful example to us of true Christian attributes. He is a man of thanksgiving. And how many times does the scripture tell us to be Thankful. In all things give thanks. He was faithful. He stuck with the task. He was perseverant. He would press through to do the task, even denying his own desires and needs at the moment. He was a servant. He was an example of servanthood. Perseverance, faithfulness, servanthood, graciousness, thankfulness. This guy's inspiring. Convicting, too. Abraham's servant was excited. I don't know how old the guy was. I don't think he was terribly young. But he's pretty excited here. And, uh, I, you know, I, I think he's just kind of quivering all over. I mean, whoa, this is great. Everything is working out so wonderfully well. And Abraham is going to be just pleased with me beyond anything I could have hoped for. So what does he do? He runs to his saddlebags and brings out gifts, 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 gold, silver, fine garments. And he just seems, the implication seems to be he kind of heaps this stuff on them, upon Rebecca and upon Laban and upon <coughs> their mother. Uh, he, it, in, in the um, NASB, it says articles of silver and articles of uh, gold. The, the Hebrew word here means something made of. And so these were, this was something made of gold and something made of silver, probably jewelry and, and ornaments and uh, utensils of some sort, little vases and pitchers and who knows what all, uh, were brought out and given as, as gifts. They could be sure from this that they were not committing their daughter to live 
a life of poverty. This guy is well-to-do, and this is just a little sample of it. Only after all of this had happened, he had gotten their approval, he had given the gifts, then he said, okay, let's eat. And they finally sit down and eat. And probably some people are sitting on the food's getting cold, you know, or, the, or, or it's getting hot or whatever uh, it was at that particular time. And you think, well, this guy's really pushed it. So when they come with the next request, he should probably just say, oh, sure, I've, I've really pushed this. I mean, I've rushed this along, so I better just kind of back off. And they want a few days to, to enjoy their sister, their daughter, before I carry them off. I better give them that time. And so he gets up the next morning and says, I'm off. Bring the girl. And uh, <laughs> we're going. Now, he could have enjoyed himself immensely there. They would have wined him and dined him for the whole time he was there. He could have kicked back, relaxed, drunk what he wanted, ate what he wanted to, toured the city, you know, gotten on gray, gray camel and taken the tour around the city, you know, <laughs> whatever, <laughs> uh, to, to see uh, the area. But this guy's not going to while away his time. He doesn't reward himself for a job well done. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to reward ourselves for a job well done, but sometimes we over-reward ourselves, <laughs> and sometimes for a job not so well done. You know, um, but he is not going to do that at all, because the job isn't done yet. The girl is still in Padanaram. I've got to get her safely all the way back to Canaan. Now, certainly he had faith that God had brought him safely there. God had made these arrangements. God would get him back. But the job was still not done. And as I looked at that, it reminded me of uh, these verses in Ephesians 5. Mm -hmm. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16, where we're told, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. If that applied in the first century, it applies in the late 20th century America. The days are evil. Now, you know, it's, it's, it's nothing that comes as a surprise to any of us, but it just kind of taking the trip like we did reminds us a little bit more of the fact that we're not just living in some isolated corner of the country where there's a lot of evil. I mean, it permeates this country from shore to shore from top to bottom, evil permeates this land. And there's vileness everywhere. I mean, we went to see all the lovely little uh, places in Philadelphia, you know, Independence Hall, the Liberty Bell, all those good things. And then we wanted to see where at least one of the Alliance churches was in Philadelphia. Well, there was one a little bit north of that area, and we knew nothing about Philadelphia. So we drove off into that area, and I mean, we got into a slum like I'd never seen anywhere before. I mean, it was. It was gross. Garbage everywhere, sewage running in the streets, people like ants crawling all over the place. It was an awful place, and it seemed like you couldn't get out of it. You drive mile after mile, and it gets worse. And we finally found the church, and it was in the middle of this. You know, graffiti all over the door, but like Lois uh, said when she saw it, th this is their mission field. They're reaching out to these people. And I got out to take a picture, because we always take pictures of the churches, the Alliance churches, wherever we see them. And uh, some people were kind of looking at us, kind of uh, 
sourly as we were doing this, probably wondering, they probably thought we were some kind of agents or something, you know, <laughs> of the government or somebody they wouldn't like around, but it took us forever to get out of there. But you, you see the, the fruit of sin everywhere. I'm not saying that these people were sinful, therefore they're in the slum, but the sin of, of, of this land and of our society helps to produce these, these awful places. And, you know, you, you even go to the fine places, and, and people give not a care for God. And yet there are these isolated places where wonderful churches are in existence and wonderful congregations, and, and, and people still, of course, love the Lord. But there's so much vileness from one end of this land to the other. So this, this passage so deeply applies, making the most of your time because the days are evil. We haven't got time to just sit around and fritter our days away, enjoying ourselves out. Pardon me, I don't mean this to anybody here because I don't know what any of you possess. But sitting out on our houseboat weekend after weekend or week after week, frittering away our time, enjoying the sunshine and the water while the world goes to hell. Uh, we need to be about our Father's business. Not that we can't reward ourselves a little bit time to time. But it's, it's where our focus is. That's what the real thing we're talking about here. It's not whether you can or can't do this or that. It's where is our focus? Is our focus on doing what needs to be done? Or is our focus on constantly pandering our, our physical, to our physical needs? You know, are we always satisfying our physical needs and doing that which is comfortable and that which is enjoyable? And one of the things we really find to be probably true nationwide, but we have found this to be particularly true here in Reading, and again, I'm not speaking to anybody specifically here because I don't know that, but I find that people are not really very faithful to the house of God out here on the West Coast, especially in this Reading area, because there's so many recreation places, and they go, you know, why should summertime suddenly attendance drop to a, by third or, a, or a half? It shouldn't. Sure, people are going to go on vacation, but... Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, there's something wrong. People have their, 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 their orientation is all screwy because this is where we are to be and this, is, this should be important to us. I mean, we go to job on Monday if we're supposed to be in a job. What if we just say, hey, I'm going to go out in the house, but I don't feel like going to work today. Well, maybe you can do that if you run your own business. If you're working for somebody else, he's probably not going to be happy with that. But we kind of give God just to kind of like he's, oh, he understands. Yeah, he understands. He understands that he's not important to us. And, and really our focus needs to be where God is working and, and doing, doing the things of God. And uh, this man is a powerful example of that. Um, even to the point of putting off a, a wonderful, well-deserved meal to get the job done. And then after it's all done, then do what uh, was right for him to do at that particular time. Well. I have more things to say about this, but we're, we're out of time, and so we'll pick that up next Sunday.